Welcome to Stumptown Soundcheck, our featured podcast today on our podcast co-op. This podcast is a production of Portland Radio Project in collaboration with Music Portland. Jamie Dunphy, your host, will guide you through the pulse of Portland's music scene, revealing its rich tapestry and exploring its significant cultural, economic, and societal implications. Whether you're a passionate fan of music, seeking to delve deeper into Portland's vibrant music scene, or a policymaker aiming to better understand the intersection of music and community dynamics, or simply someone who is curious about how music impacts our lives in more ways than we realize, this podcast has something for you. Welcome once again to Stumptown Soundcheck, and here's your host, Jamie Dunphy. Welcome back to Stumptown Soundcheck, our monthly conversation about the vital intersection between music and public policy. I'm your host, Jamie Dunphy. In previous episodes, we've talked about the effects of Portland's building boom. For almost a decade, it was extremely common sight to have more than a dozen cranes in the sky building new developments in every neighborhood. Since the pandemic, those cranes have largely come down, but every day we're seeing evidence that the development community is waking back up. Developing anything in Portland is a complicated and expensive process. It's a logistical nightmare in the best of circumstances, which unfortunately means that developers often don't have the luxury of caring about the nice-to-haves while complying with the need-to-haves. Those nice-to-haves tend to be things like community and cultural assets, art, music, and the little unique things that make every neighborhood in Portland special. We've watched repeatedly when those things disappear, and we know from other communities around the country that unless we fight to preserve those things, we'll end up like San Francisco, a large, dirty city divided into the haves and the have-nots. We've seen so many music venues close in recent years due to development pressure. I mean, come on, the Ash Street Saloon is now a fancy fried chicken restaurant with condos over it. But development isn't inherently evil. Don't misunderstand me here. We need new homes for new neighbors, new storefronts and office spaces for employers, and space for the economy to grow. We're not a small town anymore. But that doesn't mean we need to sacrifice the things that make us special. And in fact, really good developers know that they need to bring the community along if their projects are going to be successful. And that means leaning into the arts at the beginning of their plans. My guests today come from different angles of the development conversation. Brian Wanamaker was once dubbed the Medici of Portland by the Willamette Week. He spent his development career here in Portland, where, among his projects, he founded the Falcon Arts community back in 2003. He has continued to play a serious role in the development and redevelopment of spaces uniquely suited for artists. You may have also heard about Brian in an October 2020 New York Times story featuring Samir Kashrid, an artist from Iraq living in Portland as a refugee who Brian supported by providing some live workspace in one of his buildings. Welcome, Brian. Hello, Jamie. Thomas Fang is an educator and board member at the Synth Library Portland, formerly S1. In addition to performing as a sound and video artist, Thomas has supported other musicians through his work as a radio DJ, stage manager, record label co-founder, instrument maker, and as an event curator for the Church of the Friendly Ghost, an arts nonprofit in Austin where he lived prior to moving to Portland in 2015. Synth Library Portland is a collectively run arts organization that supports a diverse community of artists, centering access for marginalized folks to experiment, learn, and participate. They recently ran into some challenges in their effort to find a forever home, 
and have had a front seat view to the rapid changes in Portland's development landscape post-pandemic. Welcome, Thomas. Hello, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Brian, I'm going to start with you. But tell us, listeners, a bit about how you've approached your career and particularly how you create a business model that's centered around art and artists. Well, I have a passion for the arts and a lot of friends who are artists. Um, initially, I found that a certain segment of the arts environment were being served well, but there was this almost disenfranchised group that seemed underserved by the existing arts community. The passion of those creators, their work ethic, dedication, and what they offered the greater community as a whole drew me in to find a model of support for them. And in 2003, I created the Falcon Art Community in North Portland. The idea of that was providing a supportive environment for musicians and painters to pursue their passion in a financially viable way. Of course, as a redeveloper, the economic model had to work for both the artists and me, which created the interesting challenge of how. So I have a couple of reasons why I've included the arts in development. First, I enjoy being creative myself and finding creative solutions to interesting problems. And I appreciate other creative people. That part intersects between the arts community and the development community. What are you working on now? What projects are you working on now post-pandemic? Well, there's a, I'm into a big challenge downtown. I'm trying to convert downtown office building into housing. We have much needed housing uh, in Portland. And as you mentioned earlier, the city is very challenging to navigate. They've got entrenched and unforeseen obstacles and kind of walk through step by step, trying to achieve common sense community goals. Um, at this point, it's a very challenging business code. That's definitely been my experience, as our listeners have known before. I had a long history working in the city of Portland, and a lot of times the way that the building code is set up, or really any permitting in the city, it feels like it starts with the idea of everybody is a no until you can prove to me that it's a yes. And that's always been sort of a challenge. Is that your experience, too? That is my experience. It's, um, it's, there's an entrenched mindset, and even though we're going through dramatic times right now, that mindset is still sitting as it was, and it really needs, it's a good opportunity for it to modify at this point. And I'm hopeful that the city will move in that direction. Thank you. Yeah. So Thomas, tell us a little bit about your involvement with the Synth Library and I guess also your personal career as a musician. You know, what brought you to Portland back in 2015 and what has your experience in Portland been? Well, I decided to move up here from Austin in 2015 because I was already working making synthesizers for a living. And I knew that Portland had more synth companies than actually anywhere else in the world, which is kind of a surprise for people when I tell them that. But these days, a synth company could just be a couple of people. So a lot of the companies that we've got here are quite small, just like two to five people. I think when people think about a synthesizer company, they might think of Yamaha or Korg or these big companies that sell thousands of keyboards. But the kind of niche business within the business that I'm involved in is modular synthesizers. And mm -hmm. it definitely has a smaller user base and companies tend to be smaller, but basically moved up here for those professional opportunities. Um, I had worked in Austin uh, for a couple of different companies, including one called 4MS, which later moved here to Portland. So uh, I followed them a couple of years after they moved up here and started working for them again. So the Synth Library is a project that launched right at the beginning of 2016, and um, it was a pretty novel concept uh, that my friend Alyssa came up with. It was for 
for all we can tell, the first synthesizer library anywhere in the world. And uh, we wanted to provide low-cost access to these instruments and these tools um, because it has traditionally been a kind of expensive hobby for people to get into. And um, even professional musicians have, have difficulty affording some of this gear. So we wanted to democratize that quite a bit. Um, and in those times we were, when we launched, we were based inside of a physical space called S1, which, um, was a nonprofit and based inside of a big unfinished basement space under the Rite Aid in the Hollywood neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And that's where we got our start. And then a couple of years after that, we moved into a different space, um, on Northeast Sandy Boulevard. But neither of those were really a great fit for us. And then the trajectory was basically that at the beginning of the pandemic, it became unsafe for us to have events in our space. It was really um, uncertain when we would be able to reopen. And um, as a really small, scrappy nonprofit, it was tough for us to justify spending thousands of dollars a month on rent for a space that we couldn't use. And it immediately cut off all of our revenue streams, like being able to have events and concerts there in our space. So. Uh, reluctantly, we had to give up that space. And since that time, we've been a little more mobile doing pop-up workshops and events at places like PICA and at PCC and PSU. But we're definitely trying to claw our way back up to having our own physical space again. So tell me a little bit more about that. Like, I want to I know a little bit more about the synth library. I'm envisioning some sort of somewhere between the Multnomah County Library and the whiskey library, where is it member-based? Is it truly like people can walk in off the street with a card and walk out with a fancy Moog? Or is it, how does the day-to-day -day operations of your members, how does that work? So it is membership-based. And right now, since we don't have our own permanent space, the main membership benefit is being able to check out synthesizers through our lending program and take them home. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a low-cost monthly membership fee that's just 10 bucks a month. And anyone is welcome to sign up. Even kids, if they have a guardian, sign up for them and take responsibility for borrowing the gear. But one of the important distinctions to make is um, we're not a rental program. I think some people are accustomed to those kinds of commercial transactions, but we really have made a conscious choice to call ourselves a library and treat it like a library for books where you come and borrow gear rather than renting. And so it is a community resource and we'll work with people too. If finances are a barrier, we can waive membership fees if needed. And we're also busy doing multiple workshops uh, every month on different topics of electronic music production. Fascinating and fantastic work that we'd love to try and help amplify. Brian, turning back to you, you've been doing this work for a while. What has changed since COVID? How are the dynamics different? How are the players different? What has your experience been you know, pre-2020 and now here in uh, late 2023? I think all of development has radically shifted since COVID. And the obvious example is the vacancy in the downtown core with office space, as well as, as you pointed out, the absence of cranes on the skyline. Mm -hmm. But the vacancy downtown, the buildings that are mostly sitting empty, they're going to continue to degrade and devolve unless radical measures in the city are instituted with changing policy. I think it's an amazing opportunity to create a new horizon in the, in the Portland skyline with buildings that already exist. And we just need some leadership to shepherd that along in a focused, expeditious way. How does that change your, I mean, knowing that in a lot of ways, the city has always been a, an obstacle 
and that we're also not only in a period of transition being post-COVID, but about to change form of government. How do you, as a business person in development, think about that? And how have you changed your business to adapt to that right now? Wait, that's a tough one. I know. You know, <laughs> just looking for opportunity in a shifting environment. And it's increasingly more difficult, although it seems like there should be a lot of opportunity in the downtown core, primarily because of the empty office space. Mm -hmm. So the way I look at it, it's difficult to know how the new government system will function in through sort of that very clear code compliance aspect of things that is, you know, difficult for all developers or redevelopers to walk through and it's expensive. Yeah. So it's hard to understand how that's going to overlay on top of the crisis that we're currently having. Mm -hmm. um, but the crisis is also an opportunity. So there is a lot of vacant space and in that vacant space, it could be housing, it could be creative services. So that's why I, I refer back to redevelopment because these buildings are ripe for redevelopment. And, you know, there's a, a unique opportunity at this time period in 2023 to move forward and change the direction of our downtown. Um, and it needs to happen. It's just a question of whether the city is going to be reactionary to it or if they're going to move forward in a sort of a proactive way. Yeah. So how do you approach a new redevelopment project, for example? How do you, as you're beginning to see a, you know, the potential for what it is, how do you prioritize and what do you What's your process for prioritizing, as I was saying, the need to have versus the nice to haves? Right. Well, you know, every project is different, but what is consistent is that the math has to work on every viable project. And if it doesn't, of course, you can't do the project. So typically how it works for me is I'll get an idea and, you know, get excited about the idea and start thinking through various aspects of it. And then move sort of into a general financial modeling and just see if it seems like it's going to, if it's going to pencil. And if so, kind of continue that step forward. But in that process, I think you can compare it to shopping for a new car, let's say, where you go online and you've got all these great ideas and you want everything to it. And you start with a fully loaded idea, fully loaded vehicle, and you quickly realize that self-driving is awesome. An electric car is great, but they're all expensive. And slowly you whittle back down to something that fits your budget. And unfortunately, that's what happens with a lot of development. And so, you know, redevelopment, it's the same kind of a principle. And too often local developers start with these lofty ideas, really cool goals. But during the process of walking through costs, interest rate, construction costs, compliance, it quickly becomes kind of a stripped down model. And we end up with things that are less than the vision. And that's just based on cost. So wherever the city has the opportunity to reduce costs, keeping safety in mind still, but that allows the developer or redeveloper to go in with great ideas and expand sort of how the city looks. Thomas, tell me a little bit about the process that you all at the Synth Library have been going through in terms of, I mean, I guess the same priority process. How are you thinking about trying to find a new home? What is your dream for what a permanent home would look like? And then 
how are you guys as a collective prioritizing, I guess, you know, some of the finer details, like how do you have ongoing ability to afford it? What part of town is the best place to represent yourself? What is your thought process about the search for a place to actually call your own? Well, we've been pretty picky, actually, or selective, I guess maybe is a better word, um, because we really have a few important criteria that all need to be met. And so partly for that reason, we have had a lot of difficulties in finding the right spot. Clearly, uh, one of the key issues for us, that's something I know you've talked a lot about on the podcast, is amplified sound. And there is that kind of innate tension between musicians and neighbors. It's just always going to be something that that's there in the background. And so that definitely rules out a lot of spaces for us because we need to be able to have amplified sound and it's really not negotiable. Yeah, You know, in terms of an ideal space, we'd be able to have a space for our gear to be set up all the time like we did when we were in S1. So that way students could come to us. Right now it's logistically harder for us to run workshops because we've got to get our gear out of storage, take it across town somewhere, set it up, do a workshop, and then tear it all down and then pack it back away rather than being able to leave things set up. So we need to have a space that's big enough for essentially a studio, a music studio, and then preferably also with some open, flexible space that could be used for setting up tables for workshops to accommodate more people. And then also, ideally, we'd like to have a, a space that's big enough for concerts again. And then, of course, you run into fire code issues around capacity and, you know, a whole set of things spiral out from that. But those are among the considerations in play. And then it's very important for us too to have a space that's ADA compliant. It's basically non-negotiable for us. So I've been frustrated a couple of times earlier this year by going out to visit spaces and talking with property management or property owners about their spaces and then finding out that something not only wasn't ADA compliant, but also the owner wasn't interested in, in spending any money to make it ADA compliant. And so that just immediately ended the conversation for us. I understand the landlord's position that if they don't have to make any material improvements to a property before someone signs a lease, then they're often not going to. I think that our experiences have been tough with the two landlords that we did have in the spaces we were in before, because they were both big companies that owned lots of properties, lots of commercial properties. And it was difficult to work with them because they were kind of faceless and corporate and absolutely did not care that we were a small arts nonprofit with a limited budget. They weren't willing to really work with us on things. And we were lucky to be able to break a five-year lease that we had signed. Um, we had to move out during the pandemic and we were able to break a lease in our space on Northeast Sandy Boulevard, but it was an extremely unfavorable lease that we had signed in which we had to agree to some things that were really not ideal. Um, we, for instance, we had to agree in that lease that if anything needed to be renovated to meet city fire codes, then that was the tenant's responsibility. Uh, and the building was way out of code compliance before we ever moved in. So we were having to do things like spend a large sum of money to fix an exterior door that had been rusted shut for decades. Um, these were things that the property owner could have done, but chose not to do because they could just make their tenants do it. And so for big companies that are moving into a space, of course, they have a big budget for renovations and redevelopment, but we really didn't. We wanted to be able to just use a space without wasting our limited resources on redevelopment. Has the, the pop-up nature now, the vaguely homelessness nature of your organization, has that impacted your mission? You know, it's made it harder for us to really connect with people and serve people. I think we've always been a community organization and it's harder to maintain that sense of community when we don't have our own space for people to come to. So 
it's been high on our list of priorities this year to be able to find the right space for us again. And, you know, maybe it won't be a forever home. Maybe it will be a for a year or two home or a five-year home or something like that. I think we, we do envision more growth in the future, but right now we're kind of getting by on, you know, a few grants from regional arts and culture council and OCF and, and other granting organizations and some membership money, but we're still very small. So we know realistically that our big dreams for the future can't be fulfilled until we've been able to sustainably grow for a few years. Brian, you and I are both extolling how so frustrating it can be working with, specifically working with the city of Portland, but also just in general working in government. There are many hurdles that have to be cleared. From your perspective, has the urgency or the direction from government changed? The urgency seems to be moving along, but far too slowly, I think, to prevent or redirect the impending crisis that we're having. Again, the, the local government seems more reactionary than proactive. Yeah, that seems to be my experience in a lot of ways. Well, it's good to hear that from you as well, because here at Stumptown Soundcheck, we've talked about how that level of urgency and that late reactionness of local elected reactivity, I suppose is a better word, uh, of local elected uh, officials leads to some outcomes that are pretty undesirable and that it ends up leading to rushing through and allowing overdevelopment rather than thoughtful development. For those of us who are fighting to retain the existing infrastructure, what do you think we should be worried about? What should we be thinking about? And, and where should we be focusing our attention over the next few years to help with institutionalizing ways to preserve things against fast development? I, I mean, I see the crisis that we're currently having as something that inevitably, if codes don't change, become a little less arduous and expensive, that realistically, the only players that will be allowed in that space will be large, I'm going to say, out-of-state developers, kind of real estate investment trust types from Wall Street that will somehow figure out large funds to come in and grab downtown office buildings that are sitting empty that the banks have foreclosed on. And, you know, that is never good for a local community, especially a community like Portland that uh, really values local talent and local ownership. So I think it's very important that the city stay focused on affordability on the development side as well. And that will get passed through with cool projects, and it will also get passed through to local tenants, you know, and that, that's how that works because most of the local developers that I know, they're interesting people and they like to create great projects, uh, but there's a lot of money that gets pulled out through the system, through code compliance and increased codes and triggering of codes. It's a very complicated system, as you mentioned, but it can add up quickly into millions of dollars of things that were completely unexpected and don't go actually into the nail and hammer structure of the redevelopment. So I think people are not necessarily familiar with the exceptional costs, primarily in Portland, for redevelopment. And it seems like things should happen in a more efficient way. But during that process of going through to follow up on a, an interesting project, the costs just get pulled out into fees and everything gets reduced. So I'm a policy wonk. I don't ever work in the actual world of development. And so 
my approaches to how I think about how to solve these things often come through a policy lens. And I really do hear you saying that the more restrictions we put and the more hurdles we put, especially in the way that Portland does permitting, any additional obstacle is going to limit the kind of, or at the very least, the volume of development that will be coming back to the city. You know, one policy explanation that we have been exploring specifically is around acoustic zoning. There's some national best practices about how you can require additional sound treatment for new developments in dense urban areas like the CX zones or the CM zones. But hearing you, though, that saying that maybe adding additional requirements on right now isn't the right answer. What else do you think would be the right answer? What could we do to prevent new development being built quickly and shoddily that, such that it imperils the existing music environment? Big question. <laughs> so I'm, ju- I'm thinking through all of our venues that we have in Portland, right? I don't know all of them. Well, here, let me give you an example. The Crystal Ballroom. Yeah. There is an, a vacant parking lot right behind the Crystal Ballroom. And it's often used to help musicians load in, but it's not owned by the Crystal Ballroom. And it's zoned CX with a downtown bonus. That means that you could do 22 stories of mixed use right there, sharing a wall with the 100-year-old music venue. No one would ever be able to build that, but that's what the base zone lining allows. But with no acoustic requirements under the zoning code, if somebody were to build residential right there and share a wall, the soundproofing requirements would then fall on the crystal to do something, rather than instead requiring up front the developer put in additional wall treatments or sound acoustic treatments. Little things like that are popping up, and we, that's how we lost the venue Soleil's. In our opinion, that's how the venue Soleil's was put under due to community pressures. And so we're trying to solve for that. That's our big like, challenge, I guess, is new development coming in and pressuring out the existing developments. I hear you. I hear what you're saying there. I mean, I think Portlanders have an affinity for historic buildings. I know I do. We all value those and want to maintain them. So in certain cases, it makes sense that there would be, you know, code reevaluations and a system in place to add responsibility to sort of a new development, not necessarily an existing structure. Sure. But what I've noticed in the city is what sounds like a good idea ends up triggering so many other factors that become excessive that it really reduces the ability to develop at all. And so the increased costs definitely take out money from what's possible. In the near term, we've got so many existing structures that'll be sitting empty. That is really the opportunity. And I'm not clear that while zoning allows for that over at the Crystal, I'm not clear that people will be focused on outside of the downtown core, if city council encourages development in that direction. Mm. I also know that it's specific to sound, but it's really expensive and difficult to manage. I've tried to add in soundproofing, so to speak, in a live venue before. And what I learned was that it's even the smallest hole in a soundproofing area allows sound to escape and to get rid of every possible way to reduce the sound is expensive and difficult. Yeah. So sound in particular is its own kind of animal and very difficult to find solutions. Thomas, what is next for the Synth Library Portland and how can our listeners help you? 
Um, well, we are definitely interested in partnering with other nonprofits and other educational organizations as a path toward possibly sharing a space. So that's something that we're seeking. You know, as I mentioned, we've had difficulties with corporate landlords. And so we're being kind of careful in that, in that area. But, you know, I saw a Willamette Week article this week talking about how a third of downtown office space in Portland right now is empty. And I think it's really hard to propose a good solution that would shift things culturally so that landlords, property owners would be willing to actually come down on rental rates in order to fill those spaces. I think that mm. maybe a combination of tax reasons, but a lot of people with empty space would rather actually have it sit empty than just lower the rental rate for it. The space that we moved out of in 2020 on Northeast Sandy is still vacant right now, and it, and it probably will continue to be vacant. And the people who own it have no interest in making it an affordable place for anyone to occupy. So I think that you know, I've heard kind of radical socialist proposals that there should be some kind of city ordinance that would actually penalize buildings being vacant as an incentive for property owners to actually lease them out. And I think that would help address the housing problems that are clearly faced by a lot of Portlanders. And it would also benefit organizations that are looking for space. But in terms of how uh, your listeners could help us, I say only half jokingly that if someone knows Jordan Schnitzer's phone number, uh, please pass it along to us because we'd love to speak with him. We heard that he gave a sweetheart deal to city council member Renee Gonzalez last year, charging only 250 bucks a month for 3,000 square feet of office space in downtown Portland. And I hope arts organizations are seen as worthy of that too. The Schnitzers have a long history of philanthropy, so let's make it happen. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, uh, can I make a comment? Yep, please. Because I think there's another aspect of sort of that development angle of developers wanting a space to sit empty, et cetera. And I, I understand what Thomas is, is referring to there, but I don't think it's as simple as that because there are banks that require in order to maintain your loan, right? And most of these buildings have loans on them. In order to maintain your loan, you have to hit a certain rental rate. And if you drop below that income, then the bank has this ability to go back in and to, so, so to speak, close your property down. So. You know, there's a lot of triggers in there, hmm. less having to do, I'm sure it happens both directions, right? And I'm sure there are those landlords that are holding out for the top dollar, but in today's marketplace, there's nobody looking for space. Hmm. So there's the chance for someone to get a tenant in there at, or at any reasonable rate. I think a lot of landlords will take that unless there's some behind the scenes issue or concern that isn't necessarily forthcoming. Interesting. Well, we've reached the end of our conversation for today. I want to thank my guests, Brian Wanamaker and Thomas Fang, for joining me to chat about the role of developers and development in supporting our music industry. We'll talk to you all next month on the next Stumptown Soundcheck. I've been your host, Jamie Dunphy. Stay safe out there. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Stumptown Soundcheck on PRP's Podcast Co-op. We hope you've enjoyed our informative discussion on Portland's music scene and its significance in our society and economy. Stumptown Soundcheck is a production of Portland Radio Project in collaboration with Music Portland. Our episode was edited by Daniel Lin. Episodes air the fourth Sunday of every month. 
Until next time, stay connected to PRP and keep advocating for our vibrant music community.